You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. Well, good morning, church. Thanks for being here. Great to see all of your faces. Thanks to those of you that are joining us from home, online, or wherever you're watching from. Great to have you a part of things as well. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at New Harvest, and it's a privilege to welcome you the last Sunday before our celebration of Christmas Eve. A couple uh, just announcement sort of things, things to let you know about that are happening or have happened uh, so that you can be in the know. The first is we've been talking about Advent Conspiracy since Thanksgiving weekend and been focusing on it in different ways. And one of the, the main ways that we as a church participate in Advent Conspiracy is by spending less so that we can collectively give more together. And so we are building or hoping to, our goal is to raise enough money to build a well in Haiti. Cost $10,000. And as of this morning, we have received... $4,330, which is great. Our $10,000 goal was more than we have ever raised in an Advent conspiracy. But this is my encouragement to you. If you have not participated in spending less so that you can give more in this way, I really encourage you to do it. It's a great way for my wife and I to kind of teach our kids of what Christmas is all about and to kind of pare their Christmas list down a little bit too. Kind of two birds, one stone there sort of thing, yeah? So anyway, we'd love to have you participate in that. You can, uh, on a check, just write in your memo, Advent Conspiracy. When you give online, there's a a place where you can uh, select the account, Advent Conspiracy, to give to in that way as well. Along the theme of Christmas, we're going to be meeting here in this place on Friday, which is Christmas Eve, at 5 p.m. And we'd love to have you join us. We've got some stuff planned for kids and uh, some music that we're preparing as well, and uh, a word around the theme of the gift. And so we'd love to have you join us this Friday at 10 p.m., 10 p.m., 5 p.m. You can come at 10, but it'll be a little dark and cold in here. Uh, Next up, there's a couple, John and Anita Bodingheimer, welcome their son Elijah, Thursday morning at 4.30 in the morning. So our church grew by one more this week, and really excited for them. And lastly, uh, I've talked about this a few times, but we really need more help in the tech booth. Those people back behind you that make everything happen and make my mic turn on and make words show up on the screen and all those things. They're very simple jobs, but somebody has to do it. And it really takes no skill whatsoever other than a warm body who can click things and move things. So if that's you, if you're willing to serve, come talk to me, talk to Celeste, fill out a connection card in the seat back in front of you and give that to an usher on your way out and I or somebody else will be in touch with you about that. So that's all I have. Let's, let's jump into our subject of love, which Randy helped introduce for us. One of the hot subjects or hot topics in my family over the last few months has been the idea of having a crush. My two oldest kids are in elementary school, first grade and third grade, and my son came home, uh, I think it was the second week of school back in September. He came home and he told my wife and I kind of sheepishly, you know, I think everybody's telling me 
all the girls in the class have a crush on me. And uh, the first thing I said to my wife was, well, clearly he takes after his dad. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, third, he's a third grader, and I kind of, well, third grade crushes, you know, whatever, no big deal. But one week later, my daughter came home, and literally, as she's running off the bus, I'm standing right in our driveway as she's getting off the bus, and she says to me, hey, Daddy, guess what? I'm getting married. <laughs> and uh, so I just kind of, you know, bit my tongue and thought, okay, you know, this crush thing is like sort of developing. Well, uh, fast forward to a few weeks ago at dinner time. Uh, everybody else has kind of gone off to the kitchen or is playing somewhere else, and I'm just sitting with my first grade daughter and myself at the table. And she said to me, Daddy, what does it mean if, you th- if I think I love somebody? And I was like, whoa, well, now we're getting really deep. <laughs> you know, marriage and the love, I don't know. Uh, and it, it was actually like a really meaningful conversation. At first, I had to kind of hold myself back from saying, what? How dare you? Like, I had to calm down and just remember the, the context of the situation. She's trying to learn and understand. And we had this really beautiful conversation about what love is. And so I said, well, okay, do you think that I love your mom? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, why do you think I love your mom? Well, because you have kids. Well, we haven't had the talk really about like how kids come about, so I didn't really want to go down that path too far. So I said, okay, yeah, yeah, we have kids. Uh, How else do I love your mom? Well, you do things for her, like you do the dishes. And she knew like oftentimes after dinner I'll do the dishes. I was like, yeah, okay. And I think what she was getting at is a really key understanding of love, is love is not this feeling, it's not this emotion Love is an action based on a commitment. She was really voicing that without saying those words, obviously. Well, the renowned theologians Toby Mack and Michael Tate and Kevin Max wrote a song called Love is a Verb back in the 90s. And you 90s kids, this song is really deep in my heart, very meaningful. They talked about love as an action. And in the pre-chorus of the song, here's the words that they, they put to this song. Words come easy, but don't mean much. When the words they're saying, we can't put trust in. We're talking about love in a different light. And if we all learn to love, it would be just right. Come on, mm, hey, tell me. Okay, I'll stop. I'll hold myself back. I think we all understand what they're saying in that pre-chorus. And it is basically saying what? That talk is cheap. That love is not just about saying something. We say we love all sorts of things, but our actions say something entirely different. And so what I want to focus on is how God loves us. And to use that to then talk about what does it look like for us then to respond to God's love. And so our main text for today is Isaiah 43. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And as you're turning there or scrolling there with your phone, uh, I'll just give a little bit of, of brief, brief, brief background on Isaiah 43 and the book of Isaiah as a whole. We don't know a ton about Isaiah. He doesn't talk about himself a lot in the book of Isaiah. The only thing we really know is that he was married and that he was born in Jerusalem. And one interesting thing about the book of Isaiah is it's really split up into two parts. You have Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, which seem to be primarily focused on the present day that Isaiah is living in. And the people have been rebellious. And so really the focus is uh, judgment and uh, calling out a disobedient people. That's much of the message. And there's 
other uh, messianic prophecies kind of put within those chapters. But that's the main focus, is calling out a rebellious people to cause them to turn from their ways, to turn back to the Lord. Well, then it shifts in Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, chapter 66. The focus is beyond his lifetime. It's really more of a prophecy about what is to come and calling out the reality of this Babylonian exile that they were going to be living in uh, over 100 years later. And this is around the same time period that we studied in Daniel. Daniel was in exile in Babylon. And the message here is much more a message of encouragement, of reminding the people of God's power throughout history and God's provision for his people. And so you can read those chapters and really get a sense of encouragement. And then we'll see that in Isaiah 43. And so we really see these two different shifts. And there's obviously interspersings of both themes throughout. But calling out a rebellious people and then giving encouragement to exiles. And so Isaiah 43, we're just going to look at the first seven verses. Say, but now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba, In your stead, and since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I cre- whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And this is God's word for us today. And really, the, we could go on, and it continues on, just beautiful explanation of what God promises and the way that he loves us. And the, the last ten verses are especially uh, beautiful as well. And really, you could read some of this, you know, calling out these people from the west and the east and the north and the south as a reminder that God's people have been scattered, is what Isaiah is talking about here, and God will bring them back home. And so there's that reality, and that we know takes place. We can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. God's people are brought back home. But there's another future prophecy in that we are still longing for God to bring us back Home. And so I think Isaiah is obviously talking about the present day of people being in exile, but he's also speaking to us and talking about the home that we long for. Now, to really understand what Isaiah 43 is saying, I think you also have to look back to Isaiah 42. Why? Because verse 1 says, but now. But now, meaning, well, what happened before? What were things like before what God was going to do that was really great? And so Isaiah 42, here's just a few verses at the end of the chapter that I wanted to highlight. He says, Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. You have seen many things, but pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. Who handed Jacob over to become loot in Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? 
For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war, and enveloped them in flames, and yet they did not understand. It consumed them, and they did not take it to heart. That's a little bit different than Isaiah 43, right? And so that kind of juxtaposition helps us understand that often I think the people of Isaiah's time in Israel were thinking, you know, in order for us to turn things around, we just need to, you know, develop better treaties with the nations around us and to to build up our army. That's going to help protect us. Well, the reality was is that it was the Lord's doing that allowed their undoing to come about. It was their disobedience that caused God in judgment to turn away from them and to allow these harsh things to come upon them. And then from there, from that place of judgment, God's overwhelming blessing and provision comes despite their lack of obedience. This is our God. And why does he do this? Well, I think it explains it right in the middle of the passage you read in Isaiah 43. In verse 4, it says, Because I love you. It's really a summary statement that everything else around there is helping explain how he loves. But he does it. Why? Because I love you. This is the God that we serve and that we love. He loves us despite all the reality that we don't listen and we don't respond and we pay no attention. God still loves. And so what I'd like to do is talk about how does God love and to look at some of the different ways that Isaiah 43 talks about the way that God loves and then at the end talk about what does it look like for us to respond. And so the first thing that comes out in the first verse of Isaiah 43 is that he binds his identity to you. He binds his identity to you. Verse 1 says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Who is he called by name? Who does he declare as his unfaithful, disobedient people, is how they're described in Isaiah 42, undeserving of his care. Now, we only bind ourselves to people that we care about. And so God is saying, yeah, I know that you haven't cared for me, but I'm going to continue to care for and provide for you. Think about the way that we introduce somebody that we're with, like at a party, that maybe all the other people don't know. We would never just say, well, this is so-and-so. We always say how they're connected to us, right? Well, this is my brother. This is my coworker. This is my friend. This is somebody I go to church with. They're in my small group with me. You give some context of why they matter to you. And that sort of introduction automatically gives us an idea of care, that you care about this person. That's how they're connected to you. One of the, the more overlooked people in the Christmas story does exactly this, and that is Joseph. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 1, he says that Mary and Joseph had planned to get married, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes to Mary and tells her that she will have the Messiah, and she is to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. When Joseph found out about this, he planned to do the honorable thing, which was to call off the marriage quietly so that not everybody else would find out about this. Why is this important? Well, if everybody in the city and everybody in their community found out that, one, Mary was pregnant, and two, that it wasn't with Joseph, then she could get stoned to death. That is the punishment for a woman who has committed adultery or anybody else as well. She could be stoned to death. So quietly ending the engagement that they had was the honorable thing to do, to protect her from, at the very least, public humiliation, and at the very worst, her death and demise. 
As Joseph was considering this, an angel appeared to him and told him everything that God was doing in Mary's life and with the Messiah. And this is what it says in response at the end of Matthew 1. It says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. In faith, what did Joseph do? He bound his identity with Mary's. He said, she is mine. Any humiliation that she deserved now is coming upon him as well because he is saying, I am binding myself with her. And this is a picture of God's care for us that despite it being no advantage to him whatsoever, he says, I bind myself with you, with you. God chooses you. The second thing, verse 2, that comes out is that God provides deliverance in the midst of hardship. It said in verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And then it goes on to explain the flames. And the first thing that comes to mind when we think about when you pass through the waters is it's probably a recollection of the Israelites at the Red Sea. They come up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is charging after them, and the Red Sea part is when you parts when the... When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will part the waters for you. And then you think back to the book of Daniel. When you go through the flames, the flames will not overcome you. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. And not even a hair on their head is singed. God will protect us in the midst of that. And remember I said earlier that the last 20 or so chapters of the book of Isaiah are focused on their time in exile. So it makes sense to read this as God kind of saying, I'm going to take care of you even in the midst of exile. God taking care of them for, and bringing them back to Jerusalem and other cities around there. But you can also read this as God continuing to provide all the way till he calls us home. God will continue to be the God who is with us. But sometimes the reality is in our lives it doesn't feel like he is with us, like he's actually providing, like he's doing the things that he says he will do. Sometimes it feels like he doesn't. Sometimes it feels like we're more in Isaiah 42 and going through the hardship and turmoil of God being distant from us. Now, the reality is that there's often just normal consequences to poor decisions and living life here on this earth. Not everything is perfect, and God doesn't have to intervene at everything that we would consider a hardship for him to be God. That's not the case. Sometimes we feel abandoned. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us. But the fact is that God, when we're going through hardship, groans in pain and agony. He hurts for us. In Isaiah 42, just a few verses before what we read, it describes God as like a mother in childbirth, going through labor, in pain in agony. That's describing God. When he sees us going through hardship, he hurts too. Why? Because he cares immensely. The story of Christmas is about a God who cares enough to send his son to be God with us. We describe this as Emmanuel, God with us. We're not talking about a God who is against us. We're not talking about a God who abandons us. We're talking about God with us, God who is for us, God who chooses to be one with us, God who cares for us. And so the Christmas story is this consistent reminder to us that the answer to the questions that we have deep within our souls about life 
and pursuit of happiness and purpose in our lives, the answer to those questions are not found within. They're found beyond by a God who is beyond us and desires to enter in. Deliverance is found in Jesus. And then the last thing that I notice here in Isaiah 43 from verse 4 is that he redeems the unfaithful. He redeems the unfaithful. Isaiah 42, an unfaithful people. Isaiah 43, 4, he says, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And earlier, the verse before, the way he describes this is he says, I will, I will buy back from Egypt. I will pay for Cush and Seba for you. I will give up these things in order for you to be brought back to me. I will give up these things of value. You know, what does he mean when he's naming off all these nations? Well, we don't really know for sure. But one thing that we do know is when the Israelites were in exile, one of the things that after Babylon had been overcome by the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, who was the king, also took over Egypt and Cush. And we don't really know where Seba is. But obviously took over these three areas. And it could be that Isaiah is talking about something that would be on the forefront of the minds of the people who were in exile. That these other countries had just been conquered. And God's saying, no, they're still in my control, and I would give them up for you. I would give them up for you. So even if we don't understand the total context of why Isaiah writes that and why God says that to the Israelites, we can understand that these nations were of value. And God's saying, I would just give those things up. It's a picture of ransom, that you have been stolen. You've been taken away to exile, and God would give up a large sum of money to bring you back into his family. He redeems us through a ransom. God does not give us as we deserve. And Hebrews 5, 2 describes this so beautifully. It says, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and those who are going astray. When we think about ourselves as sinful people, I think it's very easy at times to think, you know, God is able to to deal gently with the people that have just, you know, a little bit of sin, a moderate amount of sin. But the people that are like really sinful and can't get away from sin, like, well, you know, that's a little bit too far. I think we often think about our sin in that way. And as Hebrews 5.2 describes sin in two different ways. First, there are the ignorant. The sinful people are ignorant. And the picture that we get here is they don't know what they're doing. You know, it's easy to kind of lose God as a priority of your life and to start to live in ways that you don't even really mean to, but you're just kind of drifting in that way. That's the first way Hebrews 5.2 describes sin. The second way is going astray. The picture here is a little bit more of a purposeful action towards sin, desiring something that is sinful and against God's Design And how does God deal with the ignorant and the willful sinner? How does he deal with them? He deals gently. Hebrews 5.2. He deals gently with those sinful people. And the tenderness that God offers us has nothing to do with the level of sin and has everything to do with the posture of the sinner. The posture of the sinner who receives a gentle God is one who places himself or herself before the Lord. When we experience God as harsh, we are often unwilling to place ourselves before the Lord in repentance and acknowledging that we have fallen short and need his help, whether we're ignorant or being led astray. 
often we don't place ourselves before him. Part of the good news of the gospel is that forgiveness offered through what Jesus has done is based on God's work, not ours. We are sinful people, and even still, he will receive us as we place ourselves before him. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland describes on this verse, he says, As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, Jesus, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. If you look within yourself for salvation, you will only experience a God who is harsh. Why? Because you will never measure up enough. You will always fall short. But if you look to Jesus, you can experience his gentleness because the price has been paid on your behalf by him. This is God just showing his love and his care. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's not while we fixed ourselves up and made us better, then God loved us. No, while we were still sinners, God loved us. And this is the picture that we're given in Isaiah 43 of a God who loves us and cares for us, who binds his identity with us, who promises to deliver us in the midst of hard and harsh circumstances in a God who redeems us despite us being unfaithful. He deals gently with us instead of giving us what we deserve. The Christmas story, I think, should be thought of as really a scandalous story of a God who goes to extreme lengths to show that he loves us that much, that he would give his son to step into our shoes. It's an unbelievable declaration of love. When we talk about love, we often describe it in emotional terms. But when we think about love in a biblical sense, we have to start with God's love for us. Think about what 1 John 4 says. We love because he first loved us. And there's a a book I read that describes love by this Swiss theologian named Hans Baltischer, and he talks he talks about love in just a beautiful way, as in describing a mother and her child. And he writes about it like this: He says, after a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, she finally receives her child's smile in response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child, and as a child awakens to love it also awakens to knowledge. Just as no child can be awakened to love without being loved, so too no human heart can come to an understanding of God without the free gift of his grace in the image of his son. Just a beautiful picture there, describing 1 John 4, that he loved, we love because he first loved us. That love awakens us to love. It opens our hearts a little bit wider, and as we take it in, we're able then to give to others the love that we have received from God that we didn't deserve. God's love is very much like a mother loves her child. He nourishes and cares for our souls. He provides for us, and he deals gently with us when we wander. But of course, the reality for many of us is that this love is hard to embrace. Because we have life experiences that say to open yourself up to love from a God or other people makes yourself vulnerable and opens yourself up to being hurt. And that love being used against you in a harmful or hurting way. 
Many of you have those experiences and cause you to kind of go like, well, you know, I'll, I'll kind of keep you at arm's length, whether it's God or other people as well. A newborn child cannot help but just receive whatever the environment it's put in, love or otherwise. But we as adults, sometimes we know better than to just open ourselves up to God or others. And so Christmas, I think, can often kind of feel like a guilt trip. Like some of you are here today, and I know that you're here because you think this is the right thing to do. Or maybe you had a kid or grandchild up here, and so, well, I should probably show up, support them. So you're here for somebody else. But to really open yourself up to God and what he's done for you, that's a little bit too vulnerable. And so you just do a good job of showing up and keep God at arm's length. I know that's the reality for some of you because I've been there. I've been in that place where you're too hurting and broken to really let the love of Christ in. And so the message that I have for you is that love is not a verb. Love is a person. And when we experience the love of that person, then we experience love as a verb. The actions of God come through the person of Jesus. And we experience the love of God through the person of Christ. And if you can open yourself up to this God, he will deal gently with you and nourish your soul and bring you to a place where you can receive what he has to give. I think the Christmas carol, the Christmas hymn, by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, describes this perfectly. It says in one of the verses, Let every heart prepare him room. Now, the meaning of this is obviously a double meaning because in the Christmas story, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they, they go to Bethlehem, right? And there's no room in the inn, and so they're, they're forced to be brought to the stable where they're, they're born, Jesus is born in a manger. So it's a double meaning that there was no room in the inn at the time. And the question, I think, that joy to the world and that I would present before you is, will God find any hearts in this place today that are preparing room for him? Will God find any place in this room, in any hearts that are preparing room for him as well? I want to invite the worship team to come up as we take some time to respond. And as they're coming up, I'd like to just read a prayer a prayer about love. Many of you who've been a part of the church for any amount of time know I enjoy reading through the Valley of Vision, which is a a Puritan prayer book written by pastors and writers hundreds of years ago now. And it just gives voice and words to the prayers that are deep within my heart. And this prayer is entitled Love. And my hope is that it would bring you to a place of allowing the love of Christ to enter in, that you would just open yourself up just a little. Whether you come into this place and you know Jesus well and you feel God's affection and love for your soul, open yourself up even more. Or whether you come in and you don't even know who Jesus is, or if you do, you have a complicated relationship, just allow yourself to be open to receive the words of this prayer and the love from Jesus. Lord Jesus, give me to love you to embrace you. Though I once took lust and sin in my arms, you loved me before I loved you. You owned me when I disowned myself. Love brought you from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. Love caused you to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, 
scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, and pierced. Love led you to bow your head in death. My salvation is the point where perfect created love and the most perfect uncreated love meet together. For you welcome me, not like Joseph and his brothers, loving and sorrowing, but loving and rejoicing. This love is not intermittent, cold, changeable. It does not cease for all my enmity. Let me see your love everywhere, not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise you for the sun of righteousness with healing power. When I feel the tender rain, like today, right? When I feel the tender rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. When I walk by the riverside, may I praise you for the stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes white my robes, that I may have the right to the tree of life. Your infinite love is a mystery of mysteries, and my eternal rest lies in the eternal enjoyment of it. Amen. The worship team has prepared a couple songs for us to respond with. One which is just focused on love, God's love for us, and an opportunity for us to respond to what he's done. And we, as a church, partake in communion every Sunday. And so there's tables up front here, and there's a table in the back. And if you, as a believer, would like to respond to what God has done for you, to partake in his example of love, I invite you forward or backward as we respond in song. Would you stand with the team as they lead us? Our journey this Advent season has taken us from peace to joy through hope and now culminating with love. And that makes a real clear sense to me, love being kind of the wrap-up. I heard something this morning. I don't know that I ever thought this thought before. Verse says that these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The idea of remaining is something we'll enjoy in heaven, and so faith propels us to heaven. Hope anticipates heaven, but love is the environment of heaven. And when we practice love right now, when we live in love right now, the flow of God and His love through us, we're doing something eternal. Something we'll practice forever. That's why love is the culmination. The God that we connect with through Jesus is a God of love. It's the greatest attribute he has. Every attribute, every characteristic from him flows out of a heart. Our God, the heart of love. And so we're very much like God when we do the same. Unto Friday night, we're going to enjoy getting together. We're going to light the fifth candle, a new tradition that is a newer in history anyway. It's the Christ candle. And we're going to enjoy connection with Jesus Christ and each other. Five o'clock, Friday night, Christmas Eve. There's a benediction. A benediction means a blessing. A blessing on you as you go. It goes like this. May you be filled with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, the
determination of the Magi and the humility of Christ. May God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless you now and forever. Everyone said, Amen.